But I wonder where you are at the beginning of this year, because we've gone through that category. It's the beginning of the fourth week of the year, technically, right? Sunday, first, fourth, yeah, anyway, it is, work it out. And I don't know how your New Year's uh, resolutions are going, but I just wanted to start there, because I'm not sure I kind of get the resolution thing, and then we dropped the resolution thing and did the word thing, didn't we? And then maybe the word hasn't really meant much for you this year. And I, How about a life rule instead? How about something that transforms our whole being? That, that, would be, that would be something. And that's lucky, because today's passage is just that, you see. So that's where we are. So I want to just let you know where we're at. And where we're at is in an occasional series in Matthew. And as it happens, we're looking at the life of uh, Matthew's account of Jesus, which is in the New Testament, the very first book of the New Testament. And uh, we are in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're not just in any place in the Sermon on the Mount either. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 with this wonderful poetry statement, manifesto of the Beatitudes, and then it goes through four sets of Bible teaching. Jesus says stuff like, uh, you've heard it said, I say to you, and he does it 14 times, and then we come to this point, and some Bible scholars go, this is kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of it's a sort of epilogue afterwards. Sorry about that if you've got some, one of those passages to preach on, but never mind. So here we are. This is the kind of thumping moment at the end when Jesus summarizes what he's just been saying, which is extraordinary. And um, it contains perhaps the most famous saying of Jesus. I was tempted to ask if anyone's not read it, but I don't want to show anyone up like that. I'd rather read it. I think it'll come up on the screen now, and we'll see if anyone, uh, everyone has seen this before. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, therefore, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, you'd expect me to at least get to a movie analogy this early, so I'm going to do that movie thing where you begin the movie and you think that you're just at the beginning, but later on it appears that you jump way back and you have some stuff that was happening before the beginning which changes the way you've seen the thing all the way through. We're going to do that. We're going to start at verse 12, and then we're going to jump back to the beginning because that's how it'll work. Uh, we like to think we have pithy statements. We are, after all, the age of the Insta, the TikTok, the Bish Bash, Vox Pop, simple message. We like it in humor. Car crime in a multi-story car park. It's wrong on so many levels. We like the one-liner. Think about it. Never mind. Um, and we remember them in movies. Gee, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's a very old movie, um, but never mind. Uh, we're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, my particular favorite, You Had Me at Hello. And if you've not seen any of those movies, you're really missing out, and I'll tell you what they are afterwards. But take a spin on the internet, and you'll discover that the, the, the riposte, the one-liner turndown, the kind of, kind of get-back line, that's really popular too. Uh, if you were my kids, I'd punish you. If we were your kids, we'd punish ourselves. <laughs> nice, like that. Sir, you are drunk. Churchill's reply, 
Madam, you are ugly, but in the morning, I shall be sober. We can, we can, you know, we like those kind of little one-liners. They stick with us. Well, they stuck with me anyway, never mind. Or how about some sort of, we, we, we make banners and posters with what is life all about. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Now, that's Kierkegaard, so that's for real. Okay, that's for real, that one. Uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. That's Socrates. Turn your wounds into wisdom. Any guesses? Turn your wounds into wisdom? It's Oprah Winfrey. I knew you'd get that. <laughs> but this delight in the one-liner, the summary is of the essence, is not something new. So there's a story that in the first century, the Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, they were kind of, they were kind of little bit rivals. And uh, a Gentile visitor, it said, arrives and says to Rabbi Shammai, if you can tell me the whole Torah while I am standing on one foot, then I will convert. And Rabbi Shammai chases him away, beats him. He, what, what blasphemy. He goes to Halal and asks the same thing. And Halal says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Uh, it's nice. So a few decades before Jesus, people were already looking for that thing that was the summary of the whole of the Bible. Really useful if you're coming up to an RE test, right? Okay, you can get the whole thing whittled down to one line. What would it be of the Bible? Well, at the end of the Bible, we get that summary. There it is. It's been up in front of you the whole time. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. In everything, in all that you do, in your everyday, your school run, your work, your emails, your phone calls, your texts, you're making a meal, you're cleaning the lavatory. In your everything, do to others, everyone, that's not just your family, that's everybody, do to everybody what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as the Jews would have called it, and the prophets, back then they would have called the prophets everything else in what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. So basically, that sums up everything. There you go. That's the one-liner. Pretty cool. And we, it is so revolutionary. It's such a thumb, uh, rule of thumb. It is just transformative to our world. We, we've had it in other ways. We've heard it in other ways. Do as you would be done by. The way you want people to treat you is the way you should treat them. Or try Eugene Peterson's The Message. I love this. Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. It's a radical and transforming concept, and I am going to say a lot more about why it should transform. But there's an important word we whisked over, which is so, or in fact in the Greek, therefore. And it's a really corny old thing, which some of you will know, whenever there's a therefore in scripture, you should ask what it's there for. Yeah, 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 never mind. Anyway, um, so what is it there for? Well, it's there for because Jesus is referring to what he's just said about relationship and God. And what he's just said to God, about, about God is this, and I'm going to read this from the message as well, verses 7 to 11. Don't bargain with God, be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your child asks for bread, you trick him with sawdust. 
If he asks for a fish, do you scare him with a live snake? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? The really interesting thing about Jesus' preaching a sermon on the mount is it's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, an apprentice, to be like him, to be with him. And all that it is saying is about relationship, relationship, relationship. And here, at the heart of his summary of the Bible, just before it, he says, it's in the context of your relationship with your heavenly father, and he likes you. The day I got my law result for, uh, for my degree, I, I didn't know what it was, but my mate had gone in time to see what the results were. I'd gone out for a party all day. Uh, never mind, long story. Uh, but uh, all that was on my note, uh, on my door when I got back, was a little note from Mike Love saying, God is nice and he likes us. I thought, oh, that's all right then. <laughs> I must have passed. Um, God is nice. That's the context for any kind of law of life. But it also is a relationship activated by prayer. And for some of us, prayer is tricky. It's a constant, ongoing, lifelong, childlike learning experience. And why does God answer prayer? Because he delights when his children ask. Prayer for ourselves is called petitionary prayer. Long word, just, you know, just go out and impress people. Prayer for others is called intercessory prayer. But at the heart of both of those kinds of prayer is simply asking. And it's a priority. Jesus makes this a priority for all of our lives. It's not like when you've been a Christian for a long time, you're going to graduate to a higher plane of prayer. You're going to do some other form of contemplation or other kind of prayer. There are lots of ways of praying. But you never graduate from this. The Hebrew words and the Greek words for prayer they mean to request or to ask. It's what prayer is, it's what prayer does. And the prayer that Jesus gave us, the one that Will was using just a moment ago, that we said together, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's mainly petitionary. There's, a, there's some worship at the beginning, there's some worship at the end, like our services. But in the middle, there's some asking. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. God is nice, and he likes us. For everyone who receives, asks, receives, and everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus draws on the child and parent relationship. It's the most simple it's wonderful to give a child something they want. I still remember Colette's face when she got the yellow umbrella at Christmas. Sorry, Colette, if you're watching. But it just, it was fantastic. She also thought Santa Claus had given it to her, but never mind. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it is a really extraordinary thing. And all the more, God who lovingly respects us and joyfully gives to us when we ask him. And that, it's pretty straightforward. That's it. Ask, receive, seek, find, knock, door opened. If it was that simple, really just that simple, there wouldn't be any kind of silence at that point. We would go, yeah, 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 yeah. 
But there are problems, aren't there? And it's good to be honest. And maybe you find yourself this morning not stuck with New Year's resolutions, but stuck with prayer. Why ask, for example, if God already knows what you want? He knows, so so why do we need to ask? Well, it's part of enhancing the relationship. P.T. Forsyth writes this, Love loves to be told what it knows already. It wants to be asked for what it longs to give. Love loves to be told what it knows already. It wants to be asked for what it longs to give. And God seems to have freely chosen to allow us and our relationship with him to determine what we will ask. But there's another problem. Some people here may be feeling, well, God's got bigger problems than me. He's got other places to look at. Look at the world. What about me? But have you got problems? Elderly parents, sick relatives, finances. If those problems are big to you, they're big to God. And Jesus says, ask. But perhaps the biggest prayer problem, if we're honest with prayer, is the unanswered prayer. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. Every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed is the monument to a petition that was not granted. It's really hard. We do pray for good things and we don't hear an answer. Richard Foster, in his excellent book on prayer, writes this. We must not rush to answer the problem of unanswered prayer with glib talk about God answering yes, no, or wait, and the like. If we're honest, and not just trying to cover up our insecurity, we must all admit to deep perplexity over these things. Now, there's some truth in yes, no, wait. But we need to be honest. Have you had a prayer that you don't feel has been answered? Any answer to these problems can only be partial. And I listen to an app where we, we, we're praying, uh, a Bible app, at the end of which there's a community with people ring in with the most extraordinary prayer needs. At the moment, our community is praying uh, for a girl who is pregnant second time. She's got kidney failure and... Uh, now she's developed pneumonia. That's a really, really dangerous place to be. We don't know what the outcome will be. We pray difficult, difficult prayers. And we could decide, well, God will answer no or not yet. But it doesn't make the problem go away. It just changes the problem. Didn't he care about the really sick person? Doesn't he care about the hungry? Doesn't he care about the cancer patient? And yet the Bible reveals that God is loving Here in the passage, Jesus says as much. He's better than you are. Don't tell God that he's not loving enough. This, I think, is what it means to peer through a glass darkly, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we know in part, but only in the age to come will we fully understand. But there are some sometimes some sometimes answers that may help you with that problem of prayer. Sometimes we ask for things that are not in our best interest. Our prayers would simply harm others. 
sometimes we're not really prepared. Lord, grant me patience quickly. Think about it. Sometimes our prayers are just silly. C.S. Lewis said, if God granted all the silly prayers I've made in my life, where should I be now? Uh, Bruce Almighty, it's now looking like an old film, but maybe you have seen it. Uh, Jim Carrey is uh, Bruce Nolan, a down-on-his-luck uh, journalist, and he complains to God, Morgan Freeman, obviously, uh, that uh, he's not doing his job properly. So God gives him the chance to be God for a week. Great. He has a bit of fun. He makes his girlfriend love him a bit more. And then some voices start in his head. What are these voices? He complains to God. Ah, they're prayers. And if you don't do something about them, they're going to build up on you. So he has a, a variety of things that he comes up with. Uh, Post-its, filing cabinets. They've all got major problems because there's way too many of them. So he comes up with an online program called Yahweh, which is... Let's see what it did there. It's an old joke. Anyway, never mind. Um, and uh, he, he orders all the prayers, and he can't answer them all because there's just too many. There's millions of them coming in. So he simply clicks a button, answer all prayers, yes. Which means that everyone in Buffalo who had bought a lottery ticket wins. It's a silly prayer to pray to win a lottery ticket. It's a really interesting film, though, because all the people who then win only get $17 instead of millions. So they all start rioting on the streets. Really, really interesting. Go back and watch the movie. It's much more profound than you might think, especially on the subject of grace. Sometimes there may be silly prayers we make. Sometimes there may be answers, but we lack the vision to see them. Our deeper needs are seen by God, who hears beneath what we say and want, and uh, what we say we want, and graciously he gives us what we truly need. Have you ever noticed that? We so often ask for what we want, but it's so often in opposition to what we need. And part of the relationship in prayer is learning to understand what we need. Sometimes our timing is simply not the timing of God. We demand swift judgment, but God is gracious in his mercy. Sometimes we'd rather pray for others than pray for our own needs. Because if we're honest, praying for our own needs means we have to admit to our sin. Oh yes, and sometimes there's sin. In fact, there's always sin. That when you're doing a sermon like this on this subject, you become really aware of that. Look, it's not true that God never answers a sinner's prayer. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble all the time, right? But sin does activate a kind of self-deception. We don't ask for the thing we truly need. We're asking for something else because we're trying to tell ourselves we're more okay than we really are. It creates a kind of white noise and we can't discern the heart of God or see that our asking is out of step with him. James has something to say about that. All of those things may not sort of wash away your concern over unanswered prayer, but I hope they help something. And here's the best thing. Jesus, in a way, took on all of those questions that we have when he kneels in prayer at Gethsemane, Gethsemane before he gives up his life for us and asks, why? But above all, Jesus tells us to keep asking, to seek, to knock, 
And here are three simple ideas from the Lord's Prayer that we said earlier. Give, forgive, deliver. Here's a way in the everyday that you can ask this week for help. Give, daily bread. The transformation of the everyday, the material in the midst of our prayer. That was how Jesus lived. He had compassion for the hungry crowd, concern for the little, the least, the last, the lost. He prayed for practical wisdom, for discernment, for compassion. This week, in your ordinary, ask for your daily bread. And amazingly, do you see in that prayer, give for us comes before forgive for what we've done. And there's lots of that. The done and the undone. And God loves to answer that prayer too. It's conditional. We need to be forgiving others. But it's not that we earn the forgiveness by doing this. Nor that it's hard to get God to forgive us. But it's about our attitude. A couple of weeks ago, Will was talking about our posture. So much of this is about our posture before God. How are we set before him? Look, if you don't love, if your arms are around you and you're angry, and you're really angry, it will be hard to receive love. You won't be able to receive it. You need to give love to receive love. You need to forgive to be forgiven. This week in your ordinary, will you seek to forgive others? And deliver. Sometimes at the end, this is uh, translated, lead us not into the time of trial. And I think that helps us understand what it's about. A trial means a time that reveals what's really in our hearts. The revealing of hidden sins. Our desires for money, for sex, for power. We may think, for example, power will lead to influence. And we can do some really great things, some good things, if we have some power. But it can be the seeds of destruction as well. This week, in the ordinary, ask, seek, knock, that you do not need to be tested. And that you are delivered from the evil one. Forgive, forgive, deliver. Three dynamic ways of changing your relationship with the Father, transforming our worldview and our hearts. Ask, seek, knock. God delights in our asking and is looking for an excuse to give. So, when you're there, therefore, in the light of this, says Jesus, here's the golden rule to live by. Well, he didn't call it the golden rule, actually. You'll notice that uh, when he comes to verse 12, he doesn't say, here's the golden rule. That comes from the Roman emperor, Alexander Severus. Yes, Severus. You heard it first there in the second century, not in Harry Potter. Um, who heard of this saying. He wasn't converted, but he heard of this saying, and he loved it. He had it in his court system. He had it put on his buildings. He had it even in his room. And when it was put on the room, do to others as you would have them do to you, it was written in gold, hence golden rule. Okay, there are two other kind of rules. I'll go through those quickly because you might be interested and you might already be using them. I hope you're not using the wooden rule, but here is the wooden rule. Okay, this is really simple. Do to others what they do to you. Subtle change, subtle change, massive difference. Okay, this is quid pro quo. You give me a compliment, I give you a compliment. You cook me a meal, I cook you a meal. Lovely. You give me a sharp comment, I gossip about you behind your back. 
You push me, I thump you in the face. That's the wooden rule. It traps us. It's where kind of lots of us are at. And it's easier to be there than you think. Silver rule, sort of moved up quite a step here from wood to silver. There's no bronze here, right? So go from wood to silver. Silver rule, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. We heard that earlier with Rabbi Halal. It was around. It was in circulation at that time. It's an ancient idea. And in fact, it goes way back to Confucius. Okay, so Confucius was asked, what's the most important thing? And he said, reactivity. Whatever you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. It's the central idea, essentially, in Buddhism. Do no harm. Okay, you mustn't do harm. In the West, the Stoics had a form of the same rule, uh, and it's a good rule to live by. I mean, don't do, don't do bad stuff. Don't do stuff that harms other people. That seems very positive. But in the negative form, it's just not the same as the golden rule. Do no harm is a great idea, but it's not the same thing as love your enemy. Don't cause suffering is great, but it's not the same thing as relieve suffering. Countries most impacted by the golden rule, on the whole, are most impacted by philanthropy. It's a very broad brush thing, but look across the globe and you will find that to be the case. Don't oppress the poor is one thing. Do justice for the oppressed is a leap ahead. And for Jesus, love is not a warm feeling, but it's something you do. Love's a feeling, love as a feeling, uh, for a definition, is, is really shallow. But to seek the best for someone else before yourself, that's to do love. And it's the way of Jesus. It takes some thought, some reflection, and it will cost what, what if we were to all live this way? Not, not for a year, for the rest of our lives. Jesus is calling us to follow him and says, this is the way to set your compass. This is the direction of travel. And the end of this road will transform your character and your nature. So now, you're at work this week, and the email lands in the box, in the box and it's from a boss, it's from a colleague, it's from a client. And you see red. They haven't understood. They haven't got it. It's unfair. There isn't the budget. Whatever it is. And you can type the reply really quickly. It's as if every key you punch is pushing pins into their eyes. Why don't you just stop? Leave that in the draft folder for a while. Leave it overnight. And if you don't even delete it the next day, at least come back and think, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's the story to have at the back of your minds this week, this month, and if it's not too late, this year. It's the story to have for your lives. It's profound and it has a world-changing capacity. So carry it along with that newfound desire to go back and ask, seek, knock. You can ha carry it with just one simple prayer. It's the prayer I've been using this week. Help! It's a really simple prayer. But I found it really helpful. Hosanna is the old word. Don't sing it. That would sound weird, right? But help, 
Just help. Help and the golden rule. I believe it can lead to a deeper joy. To, it's counterintuitive. It can lead us to do extraordinary things. And it has shaped the world we know in it more profoundly than most people realize. You've seen these verses so many times, so many times. Now will you write them in gold in the steps of your life? Let me just pray for you. Dear Father in heaven, we don't want to treat you like Santa Claus, but we do need to ask some things of you. So give us, please, food to eat today. We're not asking for tomorrow. We're asking for today. Please forgive us the infinite offenses to your goodness that we've committed today, this hour. I'm not even aware of most of them. We live too unaware. That's a sin in itself. Please increase our awareness. And in our ignorance, if we've asked for things that would be really destructive, please don't give them to us. Don't lead us into temptation. Don't bring us to trial. Do protect us from the evil one. And Lord, could we walk in the footsteps of Jesus and do for others as we would have them do for us. Amen.